Welcome again to Summit Bible Church. Glad to have you this morning. My name is Morgan. I'm the teaching pastor here. And it is a joy to be gathered. As a church this Sunday, we've got a full house, which is good. A um, little emptier with the kids leaving, but it's just so encouraging to see so many people gathered together in this room. So thanks for joining us in worship. What do I do if I'm in an unhappy marriage? What do I do if I'm in an unhappy marriage? I typed that question into Google. And guess who was ready to give me an answer? Oprah. Oprah was ready to give me an answer. And do you know what her answer was? Her answer, in summary, it was one of the last sentences in her article, is this. Do what's best for you. Do what's best for you. Now, before you roll your eyes at Oprah, before we scoff at her response, you and I have to admit something. We have to confess something. We are tempted by that logic every single day. We are tempted every single day to do what's best for us. To put ourselves first in our relationships at work, in our relationships at church, even in our marriages. We are tempted to put our wants, our needs, our desires before another. That's a strong temptation, if we're honest, that we face every day. To put ourselves first. But the Bible, as we will see this morning, gives us another way. Another path to a happy marriage and to happy relationships in general. So why don't you open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. Open to the book of Philippians. What is Paul's aim? What's his purpose in writing this book of Philippians? I have the aim here and you can fill it out in your outline. Paul encourages the Philippians to find joy and unity in Christ amidst the suffering in this world. That's Paul's aim when he writes this letter. That's his big point. To encourage the Philippians to find joy in unity in Christ amidst the suffering in this world. Joy and unity seem to be the prevailing themes in this letter. Paul is writing from prison and yet is able to say in chapter 1 verse 4, always in every prayer for you I pray with joy. Philippians 1 18, he says, even if my opponents preach the gospel in a spirit of envy and rivalry, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. He says in chapter 2, verse 17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, in other words, even if I am about to die, I am glad and I rejoice. And then he turns to the Philippians. And says, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress in your joy. He says in chapter 2, verse 18, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. 
Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. You see throughout this letter, joy, rejoice, joy, rejoice. And we see that it is despite circumstances. Paul is writing from prison. He is experiencing suffering and he acknowledges that even the Philippians will experience suffering as well. Yet they can be joyful. They can still rejoice. You and I, Christian, if you are truly in Christ, we have every reason because of him to find joy, to rejoice, even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of suffering, even when your spouse is difficult, even when your children are difficult. Even in that difficult work relationship. Listen, Christian, you have every reason to rejoice. Why? Because Jesus Christ has saved you. And it doesn't matter how bad this life gets. If Christ has saved you, you are secure and your future secure in him. Do you see where joy is derived from in these passages? We're supposed to rejoice in who? The Lord Christ. So listen, news flash, your spouse isn't going to be the source of your joy. Your children cannot be the source of your joy. Your joy can't be dependent on others or dependent on circumstances. You know where you need to find joy first? In the Lord. You want to be joyful in your marriage? Look at your relationship with Christ first and find joy in Him. Unity is the second theme of Philippians, and it's obvious and it's imperative that in such a hostile culture, when we experience hostility from the outside, that it's important for us to be unified on the inside. This is a prevalent theme in the book of Philippians. He says, I want to hear in Philippians 1.27 that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unity is critical and it's possible. How? Because of Christ. Doesn't matter what background you come from, what your culture is, even what your language is, if you're in Christ, you can be united. So if you have a believing spouse, if you two are both in Christ, guess what? Unity is possible and it's imperative. Paul even exhorts at the end of this letter, he says, Yudia and Syntyche, these two women, he encourages them to agree in the Lord. And he tells the church, to help these women and remind them that they served side by side with me in gospel ministry. You know what Paul says to remind you of? If there is divisions among you, if there's disagreement, remember this, you're on the same team and you have the same goal. Or set set in another way, you're in the same boat and you're rowing in the same direction. At one of our youth camps, we had a game called the Boat Relays. This was a fun event. What they did was they gave us a refrigerator box, cardboard refrigerator box, and like 30 rolls of duct tape. And each team had to, you know, rearrange this cardboard box into a boat shape and then cover it in duct tape to make it buoyant. Yeah, duct tape can do that. Fix a lot of things. 
And so we did that. We, we got our boxes ready and the boats ready. And then we had two people, a pair from your team, get in the boat. And you had to row around with oars, the buoys, and come back for the next two to get in the boat. It was a relay. Now, the instructions were clear. You need to go around the buoys clockwise. I heard counterclockwise. And if I'm being honest, that might be what I thought clockwise was <laughs> at 16. Digital clock. My partner, of course, heard clockwise. Okay, so we got in the boat, we got ready, and right when the whistle blew, he paddled to the boat, to the buoy on the left. I paddled to the buoy on the right. Where do you think we went? Nowhere. Nowhere. Why is the church divided? Why is the church stagnant in its growth? Why are people in the church immature? Why is there division in my marriage? Why can't we just get along? Why do we seem to be hitting the same argument over and over and over again? Seems like we're going nowhere. Do you know what you need to be reminded of, believers? You are in Christ and you live for Christ. Write that down. There's your team and your, direct, your goal, your boat and your direction. You are both in Christ and you live for Christ. You need to remember that you're on the same team. You have the same goal. We have all been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We're all on the same playing field in that regard. We're sinners saved by grace. So you're not better than that other believer, and they're not better than you. We approach each other humbly because we're just sinners saved by grace, and we've been reconciled to each other through Christ. And because of that salvation, listen to this, both of our lives are lived for Him. He is our goal, to glorify and please Jesus Christ. That's our direction. That's our ultimate aim in life. If we are truly both believers. And so sometimes we need to remember that in the midst of a heated debate, spouses. When we're conflicting with one another. When we have a disagreement about how to, do, how to raise the kids or what decision to make. We need to sometimes step back and go, honey, what is going to glorify Christ? What is going to please the Lord? doesn't matter what I think or what you think. What's going to please the Lord? And what does His Word say? Sometimes we need to step back from getting caught in the weeds and just see the forest here. We're, we want to glorify Christ, right? We want to please the Lord. And what decision here is going to help us do that? By the way, that's what you should get to in any disagreement between believers. In the context of a church, in the context between a brother and a sister, if there's a sharp disagreement, sometimes we get caught up in those secondary, peripheral, preferential issues. We need to remember our priority. What's the priority here? It's to glorify Christ, to proclaim the gospel, to live for Him. We're, on the same, we're in the same boat, right? We're going in that direction. Well, then let's make the decision that will glorify Christ and keep the main thing the main thing. When we forget that, when we change our target, when we compromise the goal, we fight and quarrel among ourselves and we go nowhere. So it's critical in the church and even closer, it's critical in our marriages and in our relationships 
that we find joy and unity in Christ. Not trying to suck that out of each other. Now, with those themes in mind, we look at our passage today, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. This passage here provides the path to joy and unity. Oprah's path to joy and unity in your marriage was to do what's best for you. Well, Philippians 2, 1 through 11 actually says the exact opposite. Here is the principle that you need to write down. It's in your outline. Put them before you. That's the principle. You could call it the Philippians 2 principle. Put them before you. Put them before you. Now, I'm confident that if I asked every married person in this room, do you want joy in your marriage? Do you want to have a united marriage? Every single one of you, including myself, would say, yes, please. That sounds great. Fortunately, when I show you the Philippians 2 principle and I show you the path to that joy and unity, a lot of you and even myself are tempted to go, yeah, never mind, no thank you. Because it's hard. It doesn't bring immediate gratification, I'll be honest. It doesn't necessarily feel good. It's no silver bullet. It's not a one and done command, but it will demand from you every day, every moment. It's not a five-step formula to happiness and success like the ones you read in the magazines. It's one simple principle, a continual attitude, a mindset that grates against every ounce of flesh in us. It's hard, but it's possible. If you're in Christ, put them before you. Put them before you. And here's the hard part. Here's the cost for you. You're going to need to deny someone else. Someone that you're tempted to love more than anyone else. You're going to need to bring that person down. You're going to need to bring that person to nothing. You're going to need to lay down their desires and their wants. In essence... You're going to need to lay down their life. And who do you think that person is? Yourself. You're going to need to fall on your sword. Sacrifice your own wants, your own desires to put them before you. There's the Philippians 2 principle. It's hard. It's hard. It grates against our flesh. But again, if you're in Christ, it's possible. And Christ doesn't just ask you to do something that he himself is unwilling to do. Christ is the forerunner in this. He set the ultimate example, but not just an example. He gives us motivation. He gives us an eternal motivation to deny ourselves and put them before you. And that's what he does in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. You've been told you need to love yourself before you can love others. Or you need to do, like Oprah said, what's best for you. 
You've probably been told that by a friend thinking they're giving you good advice when you're struggling in your relationships. Maybe you've been told that by another preacher. You need to understand something. Listen to me carefully. That's a lie. More than a lie, it's a proverb from Satan. It's sinister. Because it pulls, like I said, at your flesh. It pulls at that natural desire to put yourself first. It justifies that. And you need to know that that is, a, that is the antithesis to Jesus Christ. That is anti-Christ. That philosophy is anti-gospel. It is the anthem of hell. It's the path and route that goes in exactly the opposite direction of true joy, true unity and satisfaction and pleasure. It goes toward destruction. To put yourself first is the anti-Christian thing to do. You don't need to love yourself before you can love others. You need to cling to Christ first. Cling to His Word. Cling to this passage for true joy and true unity. Deny yourself and put them before you. And watch the Lord Jesus give you the joy that you're looking for. Watch the Lord Jesus unite your marriage in a way that is not been united in the past. More together. Greater flourishment. Thriving. When you put this principle into practice. So let's look at the passage. Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11. I broke it into two parts because there's really two main commands in this text. They're in verse 2 and verse 5. So we have the principle... Verses 1 to 4, and we have the example in verses 5 to 11. The principle is simple, and I've said it already, put them before you. This is the path to joy, completing Paul's joy in verse 2. And by being of the same mind, having the same love, that unity and joy that we're looking for, this is the path to that. Putting them before you. Look at verse 3. Paul says this in a couple of different ways. Put others above you. That's the first way he says it. Put others above you. Philippians 2, 3a. It says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Nothing. And actually the word nothing is there twice in the Greek. It's an emphasis here. Do nothing from selfishness. Nothing in conceit. Selfish ambition and conceit. What do we do when we're selfishly ambitious? Well, we place ourselves above others, positionally. What are the things we're ambitious about? We're ambitious to have success. We're ambitious to achieve the title, the position, the recognition, the honor, to be seen as the superior spouse, to be seen as the superior mom, the superior wife, the superior dad, the superior employee, the superior pastor. We're constantly jockeying in life for a higher position so that we would receive the recognition for it. That's selfish ambition. And the conceit follows. Look at me. Paul says, step down from that position. 
step down from your false perception that you're better or higher than anyone else. Have nothing to do with that. That's the philosophy of the world. That's not God's philosophy for you. Nothing you do should be motivated by those kinds of desires. To be seen, to be recognized, to be puffed up by others. No, what's the attitude we are to have? To put others above us. Look at the second half of that verse. But in humility, count others as more significant than yourselves. So you step down from that pedestal and you put others on it. Put them above you. How many of us would admit that we have continued an argument even though we know we're wrong and they're right? Have you ever done that? Be the first to raise my hand. So you're continuing the argument even though you know you're wrong and they're right. Why? What's the goal? Well, it's not to get to the truth. It's not definitely not to hear the other person out, to understand their feelings or their emotions or, or, or uh, their experience. But your goal is to win. Your goal is the high ground. To walk away feeling better than, superior over, or above the other person in the argument. It's about you, your ego, and your pride. It's just an illustration of this kind of attitude of having that selfish ambition and conceit and not humbling yourself and counting them as more significant than you. You know the principles all over the scripture. Pride comes before what? The fall. Pride is the root of all evil. God opposes the proud. God hates the proud. So we are to not be proud, we are not to put ourselves on a pedestal, but we're to step down from our pedestals and put others above us, to count them as more significant than you. The other way Paul says this is to put others in front of you, put others in front of you. Let me ask you, who's the first person you think about when you wake up? Who's the person that you think about when you're hungry, thirsty, tired? Who's on the forefront of your mind every day? Who influences, who most influences your daily decisions? Well, of course, yourself. We think a lot about ourselves and what we want, what we desire every day, don't we? And and scriptures acknowledge that. The scriptures acknowledge that. It assumes that we think about ourselves. Amen? Paul assumes that here. He says in verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, assuming you already do, which he knows you do. You all, all of you with me, look to our own interests daily. But he says, don't look only to your own interests. Look what he says. But also to the interests of others. When you have a decision to make, the person who's on the other side of that decision to figure out like who this benefits, what this decision benefits, is often you, Right? In an outer Chick-fil-A, which one is going to satisfy me more, right? You're on the other side of that decision. Trivial example, but you get what I'm saying. Paul says, put the other person in front of you. Make a decision that's best for them, not always yourself. Put their interests, their wants, their desires before yours. 
and in front of yours. You've been in a long food line? I have. How difficult is it? Frustrating. When you've been waiting in that line for an hour, and then all of a sudden, a big group of friends walks in front of you, and they happen to know that guy or gal in front of you, and they cut the line. You feel slighted, don't you? How dare you? I've been waiting this line for hours, and you just walk up and cut? Figuratively, putting others in front of you, having their interests in mind, Putting them before yourself. Men, do you know what your wife wants? Do you know what she wants? Well, I know what she needs. Food and shelter. No, do you, do you know what she wants? And listen, the preacher's preaching back to the preacher right now. Do you know what she wants? What thoughts consume her mind every day? The things she is concerned about, the things that she's interested in, the thing that she wants from you. When was the last time that you asked her? Honey, what what do you want? Not what do you want, but (laughs) what do you want? What's interesting to you right now? What are you concerned about? How can I help? How about ending that conversation and walking away, not with your interests on on your mind, but hers? Not the typical absent-minded husband who head nods and goes, "Uh uh-huh, 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 but you're not listening to a word she says. Many men, including me, were guilty of bringing the work home with us, aren't we? We're home physically, but mentally we're consumed with a problem or a conflict from work that we need to fix. And so our thoughts are consumed with work, even sometimes when we're home. I wonder, and I've challenged myself with this question, are you guilty ever of the reverse? In other words, when you're at work and you've got a break, when you're at work and there's a moment for you to think, do the thoughts that come to your mind, are they your wife's interests? Are they her concerns? Is it that thing that she shared with you last night? To have her interest in front of your mind, are you thinking about that? Or are you just going over to another work problem? Maybe you ought to think, and I'm preaching myself, you know, I'm going to send her a note and let her know that I'm thinking about that thing she shared with me last night. I'm going to send her a note and let her know that I'm praying for her because her interests consume me. And I want to help. And I care about what she thinks, what she wants in her interests, not just what interests myself. Men, when you get home from a long day at work, you think to yourself, I've been on my feet all day. I've been dealing with problems all day, difficult people all day. I've been talking to people all day. I just want to sit down, put my feet up and turn on a TV show and check out. I need me time. I just want to be alone. Men, may this verse strike us between the eyes to put them before you, to put their interests before yours. Moms, you've been at war all day. He can walk away from his problems, you can't walk away from yours. 
His problem people, he can leave at work. Your problem people, those little minions, you're stuck with them. How often have you just wanted to check out? At the end of a long day, you want to throw in the towel, give up, hand him the kids, and drive to the nearest nail salon, the nearest spa. You take care of them. I'm out of here. I hope that this verse would be branded in your mind to put their interests before yours, to consider others as more significant than yourself. This is a principle that we all need to apply every day, moment by moment. And it is difficult. I told you, it's hard. It grates against our flesh. There is often no immediate gratification. It comes after you and demands from you daily. Daily service, daily giving, daily humility, daily sacrifice for the sake of joy and unity? Really? I don't, I gotta say, I don't feel so happy to be applying this principle. I don't feel the unity from my spouse when I'm just giving, giving, giving. It seems like they're taking, taking, taking. Are you sure, Lord? We question the Lord through this passage. Are you sure this is the way? God says it is. Do you trust Him? I want you to turn your Bible over to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. Is humility the way? 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Is humility, service, giving truly the way to joy, happiness, even exaltation? Look at 1 Peter 5, 5. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. By the way, in the passage previous, the elders are responsible to shepherd the flock under the subjection of the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. Everybody subjects and humbles and submits to somebody. It says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, elders in the church. Now, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. There's the Philippians 2 principle, the the humility principle, putting them before you. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Now look at this. Verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, what? He may exalt you. You'll find this principle throughout Scripture. Do you know what it is? Suffering rightly leads to exaltation. Suffering rightly leads to exaltation. Humbling yourself before God, humbling yourself before others, leads to exaltation. A reward. Glory even. And what Jesus is about to show us in the rest of this passage is that that is true. That suffering and humility lead to exaltation and glory. And you need to know that God doesn't just ask you to do something He's unwilling to do. 
He provides an example, but more than an example, he provides the motivation to your humility and your suffering in this life. And that's what we see in the example of Jesus Christ in verses 5 to 11. So point number two, the example. Jesus gives us a reason to endure, a reason for joy, a reason for unity. Just like joy and unity will not be found in your spouse, joy and unity will not be found in your relationships, your children. It's ultimately found in the Lord. So, listen. The exaltation, the recognition, the honor, the reward for suffering and humbling yourself before others, you're not going to find from your spouse. You're not going to find from your children. You want honor and recognition? I just want somebody to recognize I've been given so much. Look for it, not from anybody in this world, but look for it from Jesus Christ, the exalted one. Again, we're in Christ and we live for Him. For His glory, for for His pleasure. Don't serve your spouse for them. Serve your spouse for Christ. Don't put others before yourself for them. Do it for Christ. And He will exalt you in the proper time. Just as He Himself was exalted. Look at chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Here's the second command, which is yours in Christ. In other words, adopt this mindset, which was also in Christ. And by the way, look there. Every believer has access to this mindset. It's ours in Christ. Humility, sacrifice, giving of yourself is possible because of Christ. Again, Jesus is not asking you to do something that you can't do. We all have the ability, the capacity to have this mindset just as Christ. Because if we've been sacrificially loved by Christ, we can sacrificially love others. First, let's look at Jesus Christ's humility. How far did he go for the sake of others? Well, look at this. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men. God to man. Fill in those blanks. God to man. He was in the form of God. He was equal with God. Yet he did not consider that a thing to be grasped. In other words, he didn't hold on to that for an advantage. Jesus never used his God card. If that makes sense. He could have. Tells his disciples, I can call myriads of angels right now to save me, but I'm not going to. Jesus could have made for himself the food that Satan was tempting him to do in Matthew 4. Jesus could have fell down off the temple, uh, the top of the temple and displayed his glory in front of all to show them that he is God, but he didn't do it. Jesus could have been born in a royal household. He had the decision on where he was born. You and I didn't decide where or to whom we were born. Jesus did. And he chose humble means. God didn't use his God God card. When he emptied himself, he laid aside his divine rights, his divine privileges. The position that he held, the glory 
the glorious throne of God, he stepped down from that to become a man. But not just to become a man. He went from man to slave. Did you see that in the text? Man to slave. Taking the form of a servant. Jesus created the world. Jesus is God. He decides what empires rise and he decides what and when the empires fall. He had every right to take any throne on the earth at the time. Could have taken any of the thrones. Could have overthrown Herod Antipas. Could have easily kicked out Pontius Pilate. Could have even taken the throne in Rome from Caesar if he wanted to. But he didn't. He didn't take a position of prominence in society. He took the position and role of a servant. He himself said in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. See, Jesus knew that his people didn't need a king like all the other kings. He knew that first they needed atonement for their sins. In order to accomplish that, he had to sacrifice himself. He had to serve for their sake. Talk about putting others' interests before your own. It would have been a lot more comfortable for Jesus to be raised in a palace, for Jesus to take the position of a king, for Jesus even to be raised in the temple as a respected rabbi. But he didn't. He served. Put others above him and put others in front of him. He stepped down. One of the greatest examples of this is in John 13 when Jesus takes up the garments of a slave, a towel around his waist, and he kneels down and washes his disciples' feet. There's not a more humbling job on earth at that time than being a feet washer. That was the job for the slaves. Jesus took up that job, washed his disciples' feet, and then he says this, I've given you an example. A slave is not greater than his master. Serve others as I have served you. Jesus steps down in his humility from God to man, man to slave, and then finally, slave to death. This is humility. Philippians 5.8, being found in human form, He went still further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, Jesus didn't die a respectable death, an honorable death, as an honorable man. No, he died the death of a criminal on a cross. That's how criminals died in the Roman Empire. A death of incredible suffering, incredible humiliation, But he did it because he was obedient to the point of death. And who was his obedience to? His obedience was to his father. Why? Because this was the only way that you and I could be atoned for our sins. So we can have forgiveness. Jesus had to spill his own blood. Perfect, righteous blood. To suffer, not just by the hands of men, but under the wrath of God. For you and I, 
to be clean, to be washed, to be considered not as criminals, but as righteous men and women. Humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross for you and I. That's love. That's humility. That is a far ways down. Jesus on a throne in heaven stepped down to become a man, and not just a man, but became a slave, and not just to serve, but to give his life to, get this, fall on his sword for you and I. There's our example. There's our example. So when you think, enough's enough, I've been given too much in this relationship, this is too hard. Oh, I just sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. I give, give, give. I serve, serve, serve. Look at Jesus Christ who gave more for you. Christian, and remember, you have not given more than he has. You have not served more than he has. You have not sacrificed more than he has. Now, but, listen, God doesn't call you to serve to this like fatalistic, self-abasing, miserable, lowly life. This life might be hard, but get this. Your exaltation, Christian, your rise, your crown will be given to you on that day just as Christ was exalted. Jesus didn't stay dead, amen? He rose from the dead and he's exalted to the right hand of God. And because of his humility, because of his obedience, he is exalted. You and I, Christian, that's our motivation to live a humble life. To put others before ourselves. To follow Christ's example. So that we too might be exalted with him. And receive that crown on that day. Look at Jesus Christ's exaltation. As far as Jesus descended. His ascent was even further. Look at verse 9. Therefore. Because of his obedient humility. God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I always saw this passage as kind of a negative motivation. Like, you better bow the knee to Jesus or he's going to punish you kind of motivation. And I've got to be honest, I've used it that way sometimes in my preaching. I've said things like, if you don't bow your knee to Christ in this life, you're going to bow to Him in the life to come. Whether you like it or not, every knee bows, right? And that is true. That is true. And we do see principles of that elsewhere in Scripture. But I don't think that's why the Apostle Paul put that in this passage. Paul shows them that even though they suffer, even though life is hard here, they might suffer persecution from rulers in this life. Jesus Christ is exalted. He's king over all. He has subdued all those authorities. He has subdued their power and the power of sin in your life. And so there's a great victory for him. And because of that, there's a great victory for you, Christian, so that even though you suffer, you will be exalted just as he is exalted. Later, he, he again puts this carrot before believers. Look in chapter 3. Verse 20, he talks about in this section, pressing on towards the goal, the prize of the upward call for, of God in Christ Jesus. 
says, brothers, in verse 17, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Some walk as enemies of the cross, verse 18. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. There's the world. They glory in their shame. Mindset on earthly things. But Christian, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's our motivation. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power, look at this, that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Because of the exaltation of Jesus Christ, because in a great display of humility and suffering, He was exalted by God. Because of that, you, Christian, have that same power, and you will be exalted on that day with Him in glory. Just another example of this, 2 Timothy 4, 6. Paul knows his time of his departure has come. He's being poured out as a drink offering. Paul served the church, relentlessly sacrificed himself for the faith of others. He says, I fought the good fight. I I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And here's why. Here's his motivation. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. Christian, that's you. If you're in Christ, your reward will come to you on that day. The crown. God doesn't call you to a miserable life with a miserable end. You're called to suffer and endure in this life and to continue to give in this life. Right? Put others before you just as Christ did so that on that day you might be crowned and exalted with Him in heaven and glorified. There's your motivation. There's your motivation. Don't look for the recognition and the honor from other people. Don't look for it from your boss. Don't look for it from your neighbor. Don't look for it from your spouse even, from your children. Look for the recognition and honor that will be given to you on that day from Christ. You're in Christ and so you live for Christ, for His pleasure. So moms, after a very difficult day with your children and you want to give up, Put them before you. Furthermore, put Christ before you. You want to be able to put them before you? Put Christ before you. Look at Him and be motivated by Him and serve your kids for His sake. Dads, you've had a long day at work. You've given, you've given, you've given. You sacrifice, you sacrifice. You put others before you and you come home to those children. You come home to that wife who's had just as difficult a day. Put them before you. Furthermore, men, put Christ before you. Follow in His example. Be motivated by Him and do it for His sake. More so even than for their sake. Whether you're married or not, this Philippians 2 principle applies in every avenue of life. It applies within the church, most certainly. That's why it was written in the first place. 
for us to have the same mind together, brothers and sisters in Christ. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Don't look only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Trust Him. Trust His will. Trust His example. And follow in His footsteps, holding His hand. And may God be glorified in our relationships, marriages, friendships, our brother and sister relationships in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with your Son before us, we see his example of humility, we see his great sacrifice. We see His resurrection and His ascension as the example and the motivation for our own humility and service in this life. May You help us. May we be strengthened in Christ to put others before ourselves, to serve in our homes, in our parenting, in our marriages in our church. God, we need your help in this endeavor. We need the mind of Christ to accomplish this. God, I pray that you'd help spouses remember that together they are in Christ and they live for Christ. They're on the same team with the same goal, same boat going in the same direction. God, may you gently remind them And may they remind each other of the gospel and the gospel lived out in our lives. The gospel, which says, put others before you, just as Christ did. May we follow his example and be motivated by him for his pleasure, for his glory and to his name. And help us in that endeavor, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.